You know, one of the things I want to share with you guys to start is um, two, there's two um, places in the scriptures. One was with uh, Moses and the other was with Paul. And, and Moses prayed and he asked God to blot his name out of the book of life in order to save the nation of Israel. And God came to Moses and the nation of Israel had continued to falter and continued to sin and continued to waver as they left Egypt and they wandered around a 12-day journey and yet it took them 40 years of wandering through the wilderness watching God do miracle after miracle after miracle of providing for them and yet they never seemed to get it and they continued to murmur and time after time they would come to Moses and say, you've brought us out of Egypt to die. And, and you guys know the story of the Exodus, right? And um, the first time they came, they had no water. And, and God said to Moses to go and, and strike the rock and water would come forth. And Moses stroked, stru- struck the rock and water came forth and provided for the people. There came a time in that 40-year history where God made, the, they wanted meat and they were complaining and asking God for meat. And the next day they came out and quail by the who knows how many millions were flying knee high and they were whacking them with sticks and had all the meat that they could possibly want to eat. As they would wake up in the morning, there would be manna on the ground. And the interesting thing about the manna, manna is is a type of bread and it miraculously would be on the ground. And, And God told them through Moses that they were only allowed to collect enough manna for a day. Hence the term daily bread, um, you know, give us this day our daily bread. It's, it's all a picture of the manna, and the word of God is, is the manna. And every day we're supposed to be in God's word and receive that daily manna. And, and, and in order to get the manna, you had to get up early. You had to get up early because as soon as the, the day broke, the manna that was there would, would disappear. And the other thing was you could only collect enough manna for that day. And had you gone out and got lazy and and collected extra manna and put it in your pantry, the next morning, the Bible says, when you got up to go get that manna, it would stinketh and it would be foul and it would already have been just nasty decaying in, in the pantry and no good the next day. You could only collect enough manna for the day. And, and as, it, as it is today, you know, we need to be in the word. We need to be collecting manna every day and, and a little bit. And, you know, we as as husbands and, and spiritual leaders of our home, one of our job is to go out every morning and seek God and collect the manna for our house. And so we get up early in the morning to to seek the Lord or um, to collect manna, so to speak. And so all the, the many miracles that God did. And there came a point where God, um, you know, kind of gave in, not gave in. He, he tested Moses in that he said, Moses, OK, what? What are you going to do? What do you want to do? He said, why don't we just wipe all these people out and we'll just start over, Moses. I'll just give you a whole new group of people and these people are hard headed and and they can go. And and Moses prayed and he said, Lord, let my name be blotted out of the book of life. He understood what that meant. He understood the implications of living eternity separated from God in hell. And there was a passion. There was a there was a plea in his heart. And this isn't fake. You know, you or I might say something like that or we might desire or, you know, kind of throw something like that out. But do we really mean it? Are we really passionate enough that we would say, God, take me out of heaven if it will save this person or this group? I will, I will willingly have my name blotted out, God, because of the passion and the care that I have for these people. I couldn't do it. I wouldn't do it. I, I, I just, the reality of hell scares me too much that, that I couldn't honestly in my heart 
pray that type of prayer of passion for a people. And obviously in Moses' case, God said, Moses, that ain't going to work. And, 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 and Moses passed the test because God didn't want to wipe the people out. God wanted Moses to have a heart for the people that he was pastoring and he was, he was ministering to. Well, you know, you see the same kind of event repeat in history with the Apostle Paul. And the Apostle Paul, his heart for the Jews was so um, passionate and strong that the Jewish people would get saved that he prayed a very similar prayer. God, let, let, let my name be blotted out that they might get saved. And, and again, same result. God's not going to do that. God didn't allow that to happen to Paul. But, but it was a genuine concern. And the re- thing about Paul, the Jews were terrible to him. The Jews were terrible to him everywhere he went. All those stories of Paul being beaten and shipwrecked and all at the hand of his brethren, all at the hand of the Jews. And yet Paul had such a, a desire to minister to the Jews. You remember the point in Paul's ministry where he was going to Jerusalem and a guy showed up and took his belt and he bound his hands and his feet. And he said, so will happen to you, Paul, if you go into Israel, if you go into Jerusalem. And, and, it was, and he was telling Paul, don't do it. They're going to beat you. It's going to not work out the way you want it to. And because of Paul's passion for the, the, the people, the Jewish people, he went anyways. And guess what happened? They bound his hands and his feet and they threw stones at him. and They left him for dead. And, and but with Moses and with Paul, the thing that, that, that I want us to kind of understand is both of them, the heart that they had that brought them to that 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 place in life where they were willing to sacrifice their eternity. Now, it would be one thing to sacrifice your life. I'm willing to do that today. That's easy. I get to go to heaven and be with Jesus and paradise and ride stars through the galaxy and swim under the ocean for like 10,000 years until I get tired of it. That's easy. I'll, I'll willingly die for you, for, for you to go to heaven. But eternity, that's a different picture. But, but Paul and, and, and Moses both offered to God their eternity in exchange for the souls of, their, of those that they loved and were ministering to. But in both cases, it was born out of prayer. You look at Paul's life, you look at the scriptures, and, and it, was, it was, Paul said, I pray for the Jewish people. I pray for my, for my brethren. I pray, pray, pray. And you see Paul, and, and with fervent prayer, he prayed for the Jewish people. And that type of heart is only born from one place in our life, in your life, in my life, and that's from prayer. And, and I'm encouraging you guys in praying for a passion, praying for a people that, that you want to minister to. I have no grandeurs of any of us being more holy than we ought. Uh, any of us being, you know, having this, you know, undue affection and love for a certain group of people. I mean, we'd like to have that. Oh, I just, I just, my heart just breaks for these people. I love them so much. And we can fake it. But if it's genuine in your heart, you know, you see the, you see the things going on in our country. You see Christians being slaughtered by the probably millions and millions and, 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 you know, you see a, a line of guys in orange jumpsuits with ISIS guys with knives behind their necks. But, but the only way you're really going to have a passion for a people is through prayer. And, and I don't think that we have the capacity or the ability to, to make a difference globally in every situation, right? Nor are we called to do that. But maybe, maybe your um, Jerusalem, your Samaria, your Judea is your family, is your county, is your state, is, is the people in your family. 
And those that you desire to make a difference in their lives with the gospel in the days that we're living in, it has to be born out of prayer. We need to be praying. We need to be a praying people. We need to set aside time to be in the word and, pr- and pray every day. And I want to tell you about, about collecting manna in the morning. If you, there's something about in the morning collecting manna. And you know what? I, I, Jesus just lived his whole life as an example for us. Read the Gospel of Luke and mark every time there's some mention of Jesus praying early in the morning. And I mean, through the whole Gospel of Luke, it's like, it's such an evident like highlight that Luke is trying to give us as you go through. And as I taught through the Gospel of Luke recently, I was just blown away every time we got to another chapter and two things were going on. Jesus was fighting with the Pharisees again. And he was up early in the morning praying. And such an example. And the whole thing about man and the daily bread and the whole you know, way that God sculpts spiritual lessons through the lives of those in the Old Testament is, is a picture of us getting up early in the morning and collecting manna. And we all know what happens practically. You don't, you don't get in the Word and, and, and get on your knees before your day starts. And, and now the next thing you know, you're in your car and you're on your way to work and you want to spend some time praying and listening to something on the car on the way to work, or maybe when I get to work on my break, or sometime I'll get to it. It never happens, right? And if it does happen, it's no quality. And so there is something about early in the morning collecting manna, because the reality is, just like the day goes, you know, I was a, I was a, I've been a staff pastor for all of my adult life. And it was no different as a staff pastor who had my own private office that, um, you know, it was cool to pray and read your Bible, but even then, it, it, was, it was a little bit like stealing if, you know, if, if that's a personal thing that I'm doing on company time. And, and, and yet it was okay if I needed to spend. But no matter what, if I hit my desk first and my office first, it, it just, the day would just go. And I just would never get the quality, the quantity. Oftentimes it just wouldn't happen. And it's just a lesson. It's a biblical lesson of the manna. The manna is only there for so long, collected early in the morning. And then, and then you know, with, with the Bible. You know, I, I was sharing with somebody, I was encouraging somebody in, um, in reading their Bible and praying every day. And, you know, the, the, the thing was they, well, I don't remember, I don't understand what I'm reading. You know, or, and, and first of all, let me just tell you, if, if, if your goal is to read the Bible, and so many people, when you challenge them to read the Bible and pray every day, um, you know, most people say, okay, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to do it, Pastor Chris. And they, they go like this, right? You open to Genesis chapter 1. And I'm going to read it right through. And you start reading it and, you know, you get about to Numbers or Leviticus and you're like, next thing you know, it's over. The plan's over. You're not reading anymore. You know, the, the law of the, you know, the, the bodily discharge section in Leviticus, you know, it's like, do I really need to know the law of bodily discharge? And it's there. It's in Leviticus. Um, so this is what I encourage. I encourage that, n- not that the Old Testament's not important, um, I read the Old Testament. But again, if you just start in Genesis and try it, it's very laborious. But read with, with this first in mind. Anywhere you choose to read, read with the idea that it's about connecting with Jesus. It's about hearing from Jesus. It's about talking to Jesus. It's about um, making a personal relationship with Jesus Christ as you read. As you read, ask God to speak to you. Ask God's Holy Spirit to help you understand what you're reading. I'd encourage you to read first um, a, a book of the New Testament. Take a book at a time. I don't care what order you take it in. If you're new, I would suggest the gospel to start and then um, 
you know, maybe some of the smaller epistles, Galatians, Ephesians, Colossians, those types of things. Work your way through the New Testament, Acts, Romans. Um, you can always read every day a little bit of Proverbs and Psalms. The, the, the program my boys are on right now is they read the proverb of the day. So whatever, t- whatever the date is, they read that chapter of Proverbs. And then I have them read a couple, it's up to them, a couple chapters of Psalms, depending on the length of the Psalms. And so we just, they just completed one month of that. I think we started that um, in September. And so they, they just finished the first round, and then they came and said, what are we going to do now? I said, I want you to do it one more time. So now they're going to set, because Proverbs just has so many things. They're reading Proverbs and Psalms, Proverbs and Psalms. That's all they're doing right now as far as, you know, and in my house, we just have a rule that, that the boys, they read their Bible before they do anything. Every day before school, every, every Saturday, every Sunday, um, if I come out, you know, and, and they're, they're playing their Xbox, and I'll say, did you read your Bible? And if the answer is no, then they don't play Xbox that day. They just, they just know that they can't turn on their phone, they can't turn on the TV, they can't turn on the Xbox, they can't fire up the Saturday morning cartoons, which my kids don't do anyways, um, it, 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 until they've read their Bible. It doesn't take them a ton of time. And yeah, it's kind of a have to right now, but that, that's, it's a habit that I'm trying to instill in them. I try to set the example myself that I don't require them to do anything that I'm not doing myself or willing to do myself. And so um, it's been good, and the boys have been growing. We just got to the point where they've been reading a children's Bible, a kind of like preteen translation where it's not, and we just got to the point, well, Luke's been there already, but with Nathan and Caleb, who are sixth and fifth grade, I've asked them to to get into a regular Bible now, and so now they're using a new King James. I actually like the ESV as well, the English Standard Version for for the kids. It's it's a good translation. It's very, very um, accurate to the Greek. The Hebrew Greek scholar in the Calvary Chapel System Bible College is a gentleman by the name of Justin Alfred. He's the the leading scholar for for Calvary Chapel in the in the Bible College and just has been around for a long, long time. Justin Alfred had been on the radio for a long time, and uh, he loves the ESV. Very accurate translation. Translation I use here the New King James, um, just the one that that Pastor Gerald used, and so I just followed his lead and I've used the New King James for for a lot of years. Um, but I do like the ESV, especially for the kids. It's a little easier reading, and it's very accurate. So um, so as far as the, the plan goes of reading the Bible, reading the Word, um, and I started to tell you guys a little story. I don't want to skip that. But with this person that talked to me, I read. I don't understand what I'm reading. I can't follow it. And, and so, you know, often the question I ask is, you know, today's Wednesday. Last Wednesday night, what did you guys have for dinner? Anybody remember? Come on, nobody? Let's go Saturday, this past Saturday. What did you guys have for dinner? Don't guess, don't guess. Maybe, maybe a few of you, okay, can remember Saturday. But you're sitting here, why? Because you ate last Wednesday. Because you ate on Saturday. And if we go back a month, and I ask you what you had for dinner a month ago, and you don't remember, and you haven't had food or water since a month ago, you're not sitting here today. You're very sick or you're, you're getting close to death at 30 days with no food and water, right? So even though you don't remember what you ate, the fact that you eat every day sustains you. It gives you energy. It keeps you healthy. It keeps you moving on. The Word of God is very similar. So you eat every day. You read the Word. And even if I don't remember what I read last week, what it meant, what I do know is that I have a steady diet of manna. I go out, I collect the manna, and I digest, and I'm in the Word of God every day. And the more you make this a part of your life, 
you're going to be healthy as a Christian. You're going to grow as a Christian. You're going to know Jesus as a Christian. You, you know why? You know why? You know, the, the greatest advice that I've ever received as a pastor in all my years from all the conferences, every pastor's conference and leadership conference and special thing like we're doing with Gail Irwin and, you know, all the study I've ever done, the most profound, greatest thing I ever learned was something my pastor taught me, and it was read your Bible and pray every day. If somebody asked me, what is the most important, wisest thing you could ever tell me? It would just simply be read your Bible and pray every day. Because if you read your Bible and pray every day, you're going to meet the God of the Bible. And if you meet the God of the Bible, I'm pretty sure you're going to fall in love with him. I'm pretty sure he's going to change your life. And I'm pretty sure his word is what the word says is the power to change your life. When Satan was um, attacked, or not attacked, when Jesus was tempted by Satan, read it in Matthew chapter 4. Three different times, Satan tempted him with three different things. The pride of life, the lust of the eyes, the lust of the flesh, the same three plays that Satan has used from the Garden of Eden. First John tells us, John tells us what Satan's three plays are. The same three temptations that Satan used on Jesus, because this is his, his good stuff. Run left, run right, run up the middle. And until you stop it, I don't need to throw the ball or do anything different. But every one of them, Jesus answered and said, it is written, blah, 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 blah. It is written. And in one of them, Satan quotes the scripture to Jesus in the temptation. But guess what? Satan misquoted the scripture. He misrepresented what it said. He told Jesus to throw himself down and, and that, that, that God would protect him from the Psalms. But that's not what it says. That's not what it meant. And, and Jesus said, thou shalt not tempt the Lord your God. And every, but everyone, Jesus answered with, it is written, it is written, it is written. All right, that's my rant for today. Um, actually, that's not my only rant for today. I am going to do Genesis. We're going to cover at least the because we left off kind of at the end of uh, 27 last week. So um, if you're new here on Wednesday night, I know we got a couple new Wednesday night people. We, um, on Sunday mornings, we teach through the New Testament chapter by chapter, verse by verse. I'm going to teach all um, 27 books in the New Testament before I repeat one. I'm going to teach all... 39 books in the Old Testament before I repeat one. I just don't do them right in chronological order. That way we don't get Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, four Gospels. That would take two years or more to cover just going through all the Gospels. So I supplemented a little bit. We did Luke. We've done Revelation. We're going to bounce around a little bit. I try to mix it up. One of the epistles, one of the majors. So we're, we just did um, um, Galatians. We're in Ephesians now. After we finish Ephesians, we're going to go to Mark. And then we're going to do another Gospel of Mark. And then we're going to go 1st, 2nd, 3rd John. And eventually we'll do all 27 books in the New Testament. On uh, Wednesday nights we're studying the Old Testament. And we might just march right through the Old Testament on Wednesday nights with a couple highlights in between books. So when I finish a book, we're probably about four weeks left in Galatians right now. When we finish the book of Galatians, um, in between Galatians and the Gospel of Mark, we'll probably take two weeks and do Ephesians. You know the tapes, like the tapes are so messed up. Last week, a couple weeks ago, I'm in Galatians. So I'm not in Galatians. I'm in Ephesians. And I even have to say it in my head to remember it. God eats popcorn. That's the one I use. Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians. Pastor Bob, our Jewish pastor, he says Gentiles eat pork chops. But anything that's G-E-P-C. Um, but I, I say, I always mix it up so long. You know, I've put Moses on the ark and Noah and the Ten Commandments, you know. But anyways, we are in Ephesians right now. We just did Galatians. 
And so um, in between the book studies, before we get to Mark, I usually will try to pray about and seek God about some, there's certain chapters that are just like, you know, highlighted chapters in the Bible that are very important that we all understand. Genesis chapter 22, um, place in Daniel we've done. We've done some, some what we call sermon jams, so we mix those in there a little bit. And then on Wednesday nights, you know, from time to time, we'll, we'll kind of stray from, from the norm and, and do something, either a video or something fun or a um, thing. Hey, I just feel like you guys, I just want to share with you guys, and maybe something even for a Sunday morning, you know, that I haven't touched on too much, but we, we spent... The, the last part of August, taking uh, and doing some prophecy updates and kind of where we were prophetically. And there was a couple scriptures that um, we highlighted during that time that I think you need to be familiar with. And then, um, you know, then I've just been pretty, pretty focused on um, Ephesians and, and haven't really hit too many current events on Sunday morning or on Wednesday. I, I just wanted to highlight a couple for us tonight um, of things that are going on. Number one, the, 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 there was four or five in our prophecy update. You guys can go back and check those out. But, but there's a couple scriptures I want you to be very familiar with. One of them is Isaiah 17. What does it say in Isaiah 17? What is the bottom line of Isaiah 17? I got Sunday school class right over there where Miss Sue teaches the elementary. And I will send you right back there so you can get that stuff. Because you've been here, we've been teaching this stuff, you've got to have it by now. Isaiah 17 is a very important prophecy that we've gone through in detail, and it's about a city and a, and a country that is going to come, become a ruinous heap. Isaiah 17 is a prophecy that says Damascus will become a ruinous heap. What chapter is that? Isaiah 17. Isaiah 17, first couple verses, Damascus will become a ruinous heap. My pastor has been telling me for years and years and years, keep your eyes on Syria. I didn't get it. I, not that I didn't believe it. I just didn't get it. But I get it now. I get it now. I, I, we are watching Isaiah 17 unfold before our very own eyes. Isaiah 17 is yet future. It's a prophecy that is yet to be fulfilled. The Bible says that Damascus will become a ruinous heap. In our prophecy update, I showed you some current pictures of Damascus. That Damascus is a ginormous city that, that is, you know, very alive and well. That, that was the case about two years ago. Today, in portions, Damascus is becoming and fulfilling a ruinous heap. The, the refugee crisis that's going on right now, we've already have 2 million Syrians displaced from Damascus. 250,000 of them dead. Another 1.75 million or somewhere in there displaced and refugees spreading, spreading out and and dominating Europe right now in Germany and Hungary and in all those countries in there where, where the Syrian refugee crisis has reached and, and reaching now the United States where we're taking in the, the results of Syria. Not only that, this week alone, in the last two weeks, we've had so many new developments in Syria that we're watching. First of all, Russia is there, actively there. Um, um, China showed up last week. We have Iran and, and, and Russia who are, who are partners. We have, we have China who's joining that coalition. And then the, the second prophecy that we um, detailed in our prophecy update was Ezekiel 36, 37, 38, and 39, which says what, people? Hey, Lydia, you might need to come back up on the front row and bail them out. Ezekiel 36 and 37, Israel will be what? Will be what? Reborn as a nation. Is that, is that future or past? Future or past, people? Past. Ezekiel 36, 37. 
Israel is reborn as a nation. May 14th, 1948, Israel miraculously reborn as a nation. 1948 years or 1900 years as a wasteland, the nation of Israel that is a thriving metropolis today. We watched it in our very own eyes. Benjamin Netanyahu, the prime minister of Israel, at a speech in Auschwitz, quoted Ezekiel 36 and 37 and said, this is fulfilled in your sight. We've seen the, the prophecies of Ezekiel prophesying to the dry bones in this valley of, of despondence and the dry bones are coming back to life and that has happened before our very own eyes. Some might not agree with the May 14, 1948 date or the, and they would look at, at um, June 7, 1967. What happened in June 7, 1967? We had a war. What happened? Six-day war. In the end of the six-day war, what was the result? For the first time, Israel regains Jerusalem as its capital. The, the borders of Israel are extended in a miraculous victory of miracles such as, you know, biblical proportions of how God miraculously um, delivered Israel by His hand and, and, and to the borders where Israel is today. The fight in the UN this last week and with what's going on in Israel and, and, and this push is to push Israel back to its 1967 borders. It will not happen. Number one, the borders are indefensible. And number two, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob is very interested in the land of Israel. And he's not interested in any of his leaders giving it back or trading it for peace. Because first of all, it's not going to happen. And God doesn't want it. And the word of the Lord has spoken on multiple occasions to Benjamin Netanyahu that he is not to trade land for peace. And that comes from the Lord and the Lord is interested in that land and it's not going to happen. It's going to start a war before it happens. So then in Ezekiel 38 and 39, we have what's called the Gog and Magog War. This is very important stuff. And so we've been teaching that. If you've been sitting here for a while, again, I'm, I'm expecting you guys to, to at least grasp the basics of Ezekiel 36, 37, 38, 39, Isaiah 17. So Ezekiel 38 and 39 describes an end times war, a war that's going to happen at the, at the end of the world, at the beginning of the seven-year tribulation period that the book of Revelation in, in Revelation chapter 5 through 19 describes in detail a seven-year period of human history where the church is removed and God's wrath is poured out upon a, tr- a Christ-rejecting world and God's focus returns to the nation of Israel where he supernaturally provides for them. In Ezekiel 38 and 39, the war of Gog and Magog is something that we've been um, focusing on and studying for many years. And as, as the political landscape has changed over the years, we're always watching to see. And yeah, there's been things throughout the last 30 years that have kind of been like, oh, this is exciting. Is this it? But what's happening right now is unprecedented. It, it, it's for the first time in human history that we have Russia and Iran with foot soldiers on the border of Israel. So at the very least, I'm not saying that this is Ezekiel 30, 38 and 39. What I am saying is that this is Ezekiel 38 and 39. No, I'm just kidding. What I'm saying is that we are seeing it set up before our eyes. Can Russia and Iran back up and go home and things settle down? Quite possibly, for sure. Could happen, right? But if it doesn't happen that way, and, and there, there breaks out a, a, a skirmish right now. We're in a situation right now which 
politically, I, I don't even need to get into it, but right, that Putin has dominated the United States in this whole um, battle in Syria. And, and he, a general, a three-star general from, from Putin's army shows up in Iraq two weeks ago to the United States Embassy with a, with a piece of paper, he hands it to a clerk, and on it it says, in one hour, Russia is going to begin bombing in Syria. Stay out of the way. And what have we done since then? We've stayed out of the way. Now, now for some of us, and, and my initial response, just to be honest, is, so what? Stay out of the way. Let them do it. But it, it, it does stand for where we are. I quoted in the prophecy update uh, an, an Iranian military leader general who threatens the United States and tells us that, that they, will, they will hit us so hard with such a hard punch that we will be annihilated. What, what, what a change in, in the political landscape of, of the supergiant and the power the United States once was and just that we are. When you have, you have an Iranian general threatening us, and now you have Putin who, who realizes the position he's in and, and with a strong power play. And, and because we had opportunity to, to handle this situation, and for the last two years we've watched s- two million refugees flee Syria and created this crisis. And here's what happens. And I, I don't understand either. I'm not, I'm not getting political. But when we create these vacuums, this is what happened in, in Iraq. We went in. And yeah, we, we, we stayed there and we, we did our thing and we, we put the powers that were out. And then because we left too early, we, we needed to stay and stabilize. And unfortunately at that point, yeah, it was, it was a bummer, right? It would have been nice to bring our, our guys home and not have to do that. But the situation at that point was what it was, that if we leave, we're going to create a vacuum where there's no order and, and it's going to bring the radicals into, into a place to dominate because there's no order. And that's exactly what happened. We pulled out of Iraq and ISIS came in and took over. And the same thing was going to and will happen in Syria and it will continue to grow and spread and we've done nothing and so Putin is going in and, and he's taking charge and, and we're to this point cowering. But we do have American jets in Syria, and we're, we're against Assad. Putin is for Assad. We're supposedly both against ISIS. There, there's rumors that the United States is, is bombing strategic locations that make no sense, that don't fit what the government's telling us we're bombing, that we're really not attacking ISIS. I don't know if you guys seen it, but one of the first raids that we did on ISIS when we were bombing in Syria and in that area was this building, flat top like the one we're on. It had all these communication towers on the top, and we were going to blow it up. And then they show the after picture. And the building is unharmed. Little, little black spots on the roof where these little satellites were. And that was, that was our bombing then. I mean, it was, it was ridiculous. It was a joke that they would even post those pictures because nobody really knows what our agenda is over there because of the, you know, the, 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 the leadership that we have. So we, we have, but the whole point of all this is that as we look at Syria, first of all, with Iran there, with China now involved, with, with Russia there, Ezekiel 38 and 39 is, is a coalition of nations that is going to attack Israel in the last days in the Gog and Magog invasion. And we've been saying for years, 20 years, that this coalition is going to be led by Iran and Russia. Iran and Russia are going to be the two major powers. Now, there's eight other nations that are there. And we go through and we study them. Northern Sudan, I went through them before. I'm not going to go through them tonight. What's more, even more interesting about that list is who's not listed. 
Egypt is not listed. Saudi Arabia proper is not listed. Those didn't make sense a while ago. That Egypt, would, especially Egypt, every major battle that Israel's faced since 1948, Egypt has led the helm and been against Israel. And, and we have a political landscape now that, that, that Israel is not a part of. And so, so Ezekiel, the Gog and Magog invasion. So maybe if, if Iran and Russia come in, there ends up a fight. It's going to happen in Damascus because that's where they all are. Damascus becomes a ruinous heap, and they just continue marching towards Israel. We're, we are going to see Gog and Magog fulfilled before our very eyes. We are going to see Ezekiel 38 and 39 fulfilled before our very eyes. And that, my friends, is the beginning of the rapture. That, my friends, is the beginning of the seven-year tribulation period um, will be marked by the Gog and Magog invasion. So it's, again, it's just exciting. Is it happening? I, I don't think it's happening, but I definitely think that the, that it's the, the players are all showing up and, and, and the, the scene, the stage is being set for this to happen. So the other thing that's, that's kind of interesting we, we talked about it a little bit, and I think I was, I was pretty nice, maybe too nice, when I, when I discussed the Pope being in town. And um, again, because I, I don't needlessly need to offend anybody or anybody's, you know, I, I just, it's about the Word of God, and when the Word of God offends you, I'm sorry, that's, that's the Word of God, that's Jesus, that's just that it's supposed to offend. It's going to offend us all at different times. Jesus looked at his disciples at one point, and he said, does this offend you, as the crowd left and were mad. And Jesus looked at his disciples and said, do you guys want to go too? Is, it, is what I'm telling you, it's, is it offending you as well? And it's a choice that they have to make. Some things are offensive. But anyways, in the case with the Pope, the, the, the Bible talks about in the book of Revelation, that, and we've, these are terms that we've used for a long time. And I think this one is very um, complex. I wouldn't say complicated because it could be that too, but it's very complex. But the Bible has, you, you've heard these terms, one world government, one world economy, one world religion. And these are the things that are taught and that are seen through the book of Revelation, these things. So what is the one world religion? 20 years ago, again, we took the political landscape, we took the religious landscape, and we said, if it happens today, this, this is the way that it would probably shape up. And, and the Holy Roman Catholic Church as a whole, if it were a country, I, I forget where, where it would fall in the line, but it's, it's top five somewhere, wealthiest country in the world, the holdings of the Roman Catholic Church. For 1,500 years, the Roman Catholic Church dominated the world and the holdings and the religion of the world. And the land and the property and the money that the Vatican has to this day would make them one of the wealthiest countries in the world if the Vatican were a country. And so, again, 20 years ago, same stats. You're, you're, you're laying out, you're studying the Bible, you're saying, okay, if, the, if it happens today, who, who's going to be that one world religion that dominates? And you definitely know they're a player. As, as we get to today, we look at that same picture, but this time we say, but who's the new player on the scene that maybe wasn't there 20 years ago? Who? Islam. 20 years ago today, did you guys know what a Sunni and a Shiite Muslim was? Have you heard the term today, Sunni and Shiite Muslim? Are you familiar with that term? Right? Okay, that's something that... That, that, that the, the entire Muslim world, where they would stay to themselves, it is growing and spreading. In Europe, it, it, it's going to become Muslim. It's a fact of, of just natural population. The birth rate of a Muslim family in Europe is eight. 
and the birth rate of a European family in Europe is less than two. So if the Lord tarries just by the amount of babies that are being born in Europe, eight Muslim babies being born in, eight, in, in Muslim households compared to two non-Muslim babies being born, less than two, in, in European houses. So you take those numbers and you play them out, and it's not going to be very long before all of Europe is, is Muslim majority. So now we have a different landscape that we look at. Did the Bible change in what it said that there's going to be a one-world um, religion? No. We've always understood that. But as, as you know, Bible scholars, as studying pro- pro- people who study prophecy and, and understand and try to look at these things, we, you know, I don't care which one it is. I'm just trying to, and, and yeah, okay, the, the political landscape has changed. Where I make a mistake is when I take a political landscape and I try to make the Bible fit what the political landscape is. And there's those out there that do that. And there's those out there that I'm not a fan of because they're constantly taking what's happening in the geopolitical landscape and then going to the Bible to make it that. But you can't do that. The, the, the political geopolitical landscape, guess what? It's going to change, and the Word of God is not, and eventually the geopolitical landscape is going to line up with what the Word of God already says. But biblical prophecy, uh, as we look forward, it, it is a little bit of a, a moving puzzle pieces around. It doesn't change what the Word of God says or what, what, what's true and what's not true, but as we try to understand it and solve it, 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 it changes. And at times we're wrong and have been wrong. My, my personal um, eschatology has been wrong. For example, we, um, in the Gog and Magog invasion, you have uh, Iran and Russia attacking Israel. And so when I was in Bible college and I'm learning this stuff for the first time and I'm studying it, I'm thinking, but, and, and, and then, and then the, the second question is, okay, so we have Ezekiel 38 and 39. It's, it's a, an invasion of wars. Does the rapture happen before the Gog and Magog invasion of Russia and Iran and the eight other nations attacking Israel and God showing up and wiping them out miraculously? Does the rapture happen before the, the invasion or after? So the, the, to this day, the answer is, I don't know. You, you asked Joel Rosenberg, who is the, the leading scholar on Ezekiel 37, 38, 39. And, and his answer is, I don't know. And, and so maybe right before, maybe right after. So as I'm looking at it 20 years ago, I'm thinking, well, the one thing that doesn't make sense is if Iran and Russia are going to attack Israel, the Israel's greatest ally is who? Is who? 20 years ago. The United States. That, that if they attack Israel, we're going to fight. They're, it's going to start a world war, and the United States is going to fight. So why would R- Russia and Iran s- attack Israel knowing that they're going to draw us into a war and, and, and get punched from behind by the United States? And really, the, militarily, they, they have to worry about us. So maybe there's a preemptive strike, a nuclear strike in the United States, something that creates a little bit of a... A, a, a smoke cloud that maybe in that mayhem the rapture happens the that that, that we're, we're raptured and as the dust settles from maybe some limited nuclear strikes and and maybe a Pearl Harbor type of strike on the United States in order to for Iran and Russia to attack Israel um, that's the way I would look at it and again just just looking at how maybe it possibly could go down today that that's for the first time changing because now, we, we live for the first time in a world where the United States doesn't stand with Israel. 
The church stands with Israel. There, there's, there's, there's plenty of people in our nation, evangelical Christians like myself and like yourselves, who stand with Israel, but our government doesn't. And that again, that, 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 that whole thing, like what, what kind of scenario could possibly play out in the United States that we would successfully turn our backs on Israel? We, we might get a president named Barack Hussein Obama. That might be a start. But, but even then, even God choosing and, uh, and assigning leadership and direction where we are, because you know, you know who's going to stand with Israel in, in Ezekiel 38 and 39? Nobody. God. That's the prophecy. So in order for the Ezekiel 38 and 39 to be fulfilled, we do need to have a political landscape where no, not one person stands with Israel physically. Now, we might stand emotionally and spiritually, and, but physically fighting for and, and, and protecting and being there for Israel, it, the only way Ezekiel 38 and 39 happens is when Israel is alone. What, what's God's style, you guys, throughout the whole Bible? Does, does he want to do it, or does he want someone else to do it for him so they get the glory? How about, how about with Gideon, right? 135,000 Assyrian soldiers. Gideon, 30,000 soldiers. Gideon goes to the Lord, and another 105,000 soldiers would help, Lord. We're we're 105,000 short. And he goes to the Lord, and he says, hey, Lord, we're 105,000 short. Where where are you going to bring those guys from? And the Lord says, Gideon, you have too many soldiers. And Gideon says, what are you talking about, Willis? And he says, tell the ones that are afraid to go home. And so Gideon goes back out, right? You know the story. And he tells the men, hey, if you're afraid, go home. And half of them leave. Then he goes back to the Lord and he says, okay, we're, we're really short now. Half of them just went home. Good plan, Lord. And God says, hey, Gideon, you still got too many men, right? And you know the story, right? He whittles Gideon down to 300. And 300 soldiers go to this battle against 135,000 Assyrians. 450 to 1 are the odds at this point. That's God's odds. When, when Elijah went to fight on Mount Carmel... It was Elijah versus the priests of Baal. And Elijah said, call all the priests of Baal and let's have a competition. And the God that answers by fire, serve him. And, the, and, and Elijah built an altar and the prophets of Baal built an altar. And they went first and they began to pray to their gods. And one week they prayed and cut themselves and wailed and asked their God to answer by fire. And then Elijah, at the end, when it was his turn, prayed a simple prayer and God answered by fire. And Elijah went and he wiped out, guess how many prophets of Baal? 450, 450 to 1. Another place in the scripture where you see God's odds, 450 to 1. So in, in the end times, the United States is not going to be the savior of Israel. Only God is going to save Israel. And, and in order for that to happen, we, we had to get to the point where, where we, we would turn our back on Israel. Did you guys see Benjamin Netanyahu's speech in the UN this, this last week? If you didn't, go on YouTube when you get home. And type in Benjamin Netanyahu, UN General Assembly. It's about 45 minutes. Watch it. Watch his speech. And, and, and you know what? You know, who, you know the delegates from the United States who were not there? Secretary of Defense was not there. John Kerry was not there. Secretary of State was not there. They were, they, they were both gone. And, and it's, it, the rumor is that they were set to go, and Obama called a special meeting, teleconference, 
right at the beginning of, of Netanyahu's speech, which called them both out. And even if they wanted to be there, they didn't have a choice. But it was a snub to Benjamin Netanyahu from what is supposed to be their, their number one ally. When, when Benjamin Netanyahu was here last time, President Obama, none of them would even show up when he spoke to the Joint Houses of Congress. They, um, he didn't have five minutes to meet with him. And Obama doesn't want to meet with him because the last time they met in 2010, you can look that up too, Netanyahu made Obama look like a little school child when they were having a discussion about the 1967 borders. And he embarrassed him just because Obama couldn't compete intellectually with this man. And, and, and it's a snub. It, it, I mean, it's blatant as it comes. We have a president who takes uh, a young man who's, who's a Muslim deserter, Bergdahl, leaves his unit, walks away, joins the Taliban, grows a beard, is, is Muslim by every right, and trades four terrorists for this guy. Knowing who he is and what he did, and thank God, outside of his control, now this guy's being tried, right? And he's going to go up for high treason. Bergdahl is. And he was a deserter who left and joined the Taliban. And we traded four high security level terrorists to bring him back. And we have an American pastor who's been in prison for three years in Iran, Saeed Abedini. And we just, we just make the worst deal in the world, basically enabling Iran to receive nuclear weapons. And, and, and we don't bring Saeed home. We have a shooting last week in, in, in Oregon, and the shooter makes the people stand, and, and he, he, he asks them, are you a Christian? And if the answer is yes, he shoots him in the head. And if the answer is no, he shoots him in the legs. He didn't say, what religion are you? He said, are you a Christian? And, and no mention of that. No mention of, of, of religious freedoms. No, 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 no invitation to the White House. We got, we got a Muslim boy who, who builds a clock that looks like a bomb. He, he brings it in his class, and the teacher tells him, hey, you know what? It's probably not a good idea you have that. Why don't you take that and put it in your locker and leave it there for the day? Take it home at the end of the day. And it, was, it could have ended there. And the boy took it, and he put it in his locker, and, and it was over. He went back to class. But he didn't leave it in his locker. Then he gets it out again and he's again and again. And finally, the next teacher sees it and says, this is an issue. Like, sends him to the office with it. And they arrest him. And, and, and he's a Muslim. His father's a Muslim. And he gets a personal invite to the White House for bringing a clock to school that looked like a bomb. Do you know where he was the week before the invitation? His family had already bought plane tickets to the Hajj in Saudi Arabia, and they were going to be a part of the, of, the, of, the, of the Hajj. His dad's an active member of one of the organizations, the Islamic organizations in the United States. Personal invite to the White House for bringing a clock to school as a Muslim boy. Christians are being murdered all over this world. Four soldiers are murdered in a recruiting station and it takes him five days to lower the American flag to half-mast. And this little boy gets an impersonal invite. Not, not once. Shows up to Trayvon Martin, the other guy, Brown. Their funeral service sends delegates there. Our military are being murdered. Not one, not one delegate, not one invite. At their, at their 
their funeral services. There, there is an agenda. And again, it, it's, not, it's not, my point is not the political agenda. I think I got a little excited and just went down. But the, the reality is this. There, there needed to be a, a political landscape where Israel would stand alone. A- and it's going to be that way. And we are seeing that before our very eyes that Israel stands alone. You know, in, um, in Numbers, where is it at? Numbers 23, kind of hard, kind of hard, uh, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers. There's an interesting little story here, um, and, and it starts in, verse, in chapter 22. And the story is of Balak, Balak, not Barak, Balak. And, and Balak is a, is a king. We say Balak, but I kind of like Balak better. Um, is a king, and he sends for Balaam, who is a, a, a magician, a, a sorcerer, a prophet of Israel. And, and this guy has power to curse the nation of Israel. And so um, Barak, or I mean Balak, sends for Balaam to come, and basically the nation of Israel is being blessed and is growing. And he tells, um, he tells Balaam, he says, Balaam, will you curse the people of Israel for me? And God shows up to, to, to Balaam before he goes, and he shows up to him, and he says, do not go with these people, and do not pronounce a curse because they are blessed. And, and, and you guys know this is, a, this is one of the great stories, right, in the Old Testament. One of the interesting things is that when he, he finally does go, he goes the first time and he begins to try to, because the guy, the, the ba- Balak offered him all this money to make him wealthy if he would go and curse the people of Israel. And so he, he, he wants to do it but for the money, but he can. And he, he goes out and he begins to prophesy over the people and he opens his mouth to curse them and only blessings come out. And then, and then Balak or Black or Barak or whatever his name is, he, he gets upset and he says, don't you know I could make you very wealthy? I told you to bless them or curse them and you bless them. He says, okay, I'll try again. Goes out, same thing. Tries to curse them, blessings come out. So then um, Balaam goes back to, to Balak and he says, listen, I can't curse the people. God won't allow it. Every time I open my mouth, only blessing comes out. He said, but he, he taught him how to, to, that they would curse themselves. He said, send your beautiful women in among them. And, and as the men see the beautiful women and let them offer them to the men, and as they take these, these girls unto themselves and into their tents, God will curse them for, for their sexual immorality. And that's exactly what happened. But let, let's look at, um, in verse number, in 23, i got to find the verse really quick. Give me a second. In verse number 9, it says, from, For from the top of the rocks I see him, and from the hills I behold him. There are a people dwelling, what? Alone, not reckoning itself among the nations. Who can count the dust of Jacob? And so they, there are people dwelling alone. Really, just a quick side note. The, the nation of Israel, God had laid out, there are 12 tribes. So in the 12 tribes of Israel, you can read the numbers. 
so many thousands for the tribe of Benjamin, so many thousand for the tribe of Levi, so many thousand for the tribe of Dan, the Naphtali, and all the different 12 tribes. The tribe of Levi was the only tribe without an inheritance, and they were to tent in a perfect square in the middle where the tabernacle and where, where, where the house of God would be as they traveled as a nation of Israel. And from there, God lays out specifically the way that the, the tents should come off of the, the tribe of Levi and off the, and off the temple. And then he lays out the numbers of all the tribes also um, to be camped in these squares. And some are to come directly south of the temple and some east and some west and some north. And as the nation of Israel would travel and set up this camp exactly the way that God did, there's a point in this story where Balaam goes and he's standing over a high mountain. He's overlooking the entire camp of Israel, all 12 tribes, laid out exactly the way that God told him to lay out. And he's going to pronounce this curse upon him and only blessing comes out. And as he looks down, the nation of Israel would be camped in the perfect shape of a cross. Perfect cross in the numbers and when you do the numbers and you apply them to the camps and the way it would lay out as the nation of israel traveled it was in the perfect shape of a cross so just that that little piece to say that that israel will stand alone so i started to talk about the one world religion one world government and those things and how that political landscape changes and it becomes you know now and so it's it's not complicated it's what's the other word it's uh complex it's it is complicated it's it's so anyways so now you look at it but what's interesting to me about this pope's visit with the timing that we're in is like i said we thought that the holy roman catholic church would be a part of it now my my personal opinion about the the holy roman catholic church is that there i mean our pope doesn't even know jesus you know he, he the, the comedians, the, the late night shows, they were talking about it and they said they were talking about the Nobel Peace Prize this week. And the guy says, oh, yeah, the Pope is up for the Nobel Peace Prize. If he gets it, I hope he remembers to thank God in his acceptance speech. Because he just left God out of everything. he did. Don't you think that the vicar of Christ. Who had the, the greatest opportunity to share Christ at, at the joint houses of Congress and at the U.N. and on the world stage this last week might have shared Christ with people. Might, might have called people to come back to God and, and, and a cry to Christ. Instead, you know what he did at the Mass in Philadelphia? He said that, that Jesus' life end, ended in failure on the cross. Blasphemy. Go read it. He says right in his speech. And, and then you go back and you know, there's no way. I've got to read the transcript. And you look at what he said. It's exactly what he said. Because according to Catholic doctrine, it, it, was, it was a failure for Jesus dying on the cross. That's why even on the, all the Catholic crosses, you still have Christ on the crucifix. He's still there. My Jesus is not on the cross anymore. That's why we use crosses without Jesus on him, because he's not there anymore. Jesus is where? He's in heaven. He's at the right hand of the Father, making intercession for you. He's a living Savior who's alive and not on the cross anymore. But anyways, not, not a lot of time to, to really dissect that. But, you know, as you know, that, and again, Salvation is a matter of knowing Jesus. And, and, and sure, just like with any, any box, people that love and know Jesus are saved. And there's plenty of people that love and know Jesus within the Catholic Church. And, 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 I, and you know, I think there are some things that you, you classify as a cult and, and have never really put them in that class. Because it is Jesus, 
and, and, and there are the, the possibility for people that Jesus will reach out even through the, the kind of the misconceptions that have been taught that are unbiblical and, and touch people's life for Jesus Christ. Just like within a lot of different areas, I think that same thing happens. But as a whole, it, it's, it's, it's very political and very powerful and a lot of corruption. And so here we have, you know, a, a player. And I think at the very least, the point of the, the, the Pope discussion is just to say this. I think that part of what he accomplished in this last visit was he makes himself again a world player. He makes himself, he puts himself again on the world stage as a spiritual leader. Did you see the reception that he got? I mean, do you see the, the worship and the awe and the, the tears and the, you know, even, even um, the Speaker of the House, Boehner, did you see him? crying there while, while the Pope is speaking and the camera's going on him and he's just got tears running down his face and it's all red and his ears are red and, you know, just this awe of, of the Pope. But it, it does make him a player. So who will and what will be the one, one world religion? Again, I, I don't know. I, I personally think, my personal thought is that in order for it all to work, it's going to have to kind of be a hodgepodge of everything. It's not going to be as, you know, I might have told you 20 years ago, led by the, the, the Holy Roman Catholic Church, and we've always kind of kept our eyes on the popes. And, you know, the other interesting thing about this pope is that this pope is a Jesuit, and he's the first one. And that's a whole topic for itself. Um, the, the, the priest of the order of Jesuits, Jesuit order in the, within the Catholic Church, and they, they broke off and... Um, but, but it's interesting. So he, he will be a player. And I think that, you know, a one world religion is, is going to be all inclusive. And I think to some, some respect that it's going to somehow fit the rest in, in with what it is. Doesn't look like we're going to get to Genesis tonight, huh? I kind of figured we wouldn't, but. Um, another uh, couple things just I got to complain about today. Um. Do you guys see those Ten Commandments were removed in front of the Capitol building in Oklahoma City? You know what's crazy? They did it at night. Middle of the night. Project started like 10 at night. Built a big chain link fence around where they were going to do the project. And, and began to remove them. Started in, at night. Everybody was there with the cameras and all that. But they did it at night. And they removed the Ten Commandments from the Capitol building in, in Oklahoma City. You know, I often tell people about the Ten Commandments. And... Um, you know, I got a couple of people that I know that are hardcore atheists and people that I grew up with, and I don't indulge them too much in too many arguments. It's very fruitless. The Bible says don't cast your, your pearls before swine. I do pray for them. I do love them. But every once in a while, I'll get in the flesh and engage them in a conversation. And, you know, um, I, I, sometimes I'll just ask them, hey, let me just ask you this, it's, you know, because my buddy was saying, oh, can you believe Ben Carson and Ted Cruz said that if the United States was governed by the bible it'd be the best place and he's just like vomiting he's so like appalled by this statement that that they would think that the bible could be a good governing book you know and um and i asked him i said just just take the ten commandments what, what if the world just obeyed the ten commandments how bad would that be those are found in the bible don't murder don't steal don't lie don't covet have no false gods Honor your father and mother? Well, what if as a world we just followed the Ten Commandments? What kind of world would we live in? Amazing, right? 
It would end all the problems. So, so, so terrible that, that we might follow the Ten Commandments or those things. And then um, kind of an interesting thing I've been following for a long time, um, for years and years and years, um, they just discovered oil in the Golan Heinz today was announced. Did anybody see that? So one of the things that it says in Ezekiel 38 and 39, there's a prophecy that um, Israel will become, in this, in this time when Ezekiel 38 and 39 is fulfilled biblically, that um, Ezekiel will be very independently wealthy. It, it's a part of the fulfillment of, of the end times prophecy. And so, you know, there's those that argue very, very well that that's already been fulfilled. There's so many millionaires that live in Israel. Israel has this much wealth. They have this. There's others, like myself, who, who have believed for a while that it would be more independently wealthy than where they are now. Maybe not quite Saudi Arabia wealthy, but that they, they are going to, um, something is going to happen in their economy that's, that's really going to boost it. Maybe they're going to, maybe it'll be diamond mines. Maybe it'll be gold. Maybe it'll be, um, but because that, that region of the world, what is in that region of the world, everybody? Oil. That's where all this, you know, they're all there, right? On the Middle East, it's all oil. That it would just make sense that, that there would be oil in the land of Israel. And so um, there, there's a little company called Zion Oil and Gas. And it's a penny stock now. And, um, you know, they, they've been there because of the Bible. They've been, they've been drilling for oil in Israel for, you know, 20 years now believing that they were going to find oil in, in the land of Israel. And so, you know, I think the stock when I first started buying shares was like $5 a stock. And, um, you know, I thought I was getting a great price until it dropped to where it is today. It's like $1.41 this morning, you know, and or it closed today. It was $1.41. And so just today, a huge announcement that they just found a huge deposit of, and so about, before I moved to, U- to Utah, so it must have been about five years ago, I can remember hearing the news and getting excited that the largest deposit of gas was just found, or was just found in Israel. And I'm thinking, oh, great, you know, I struck it rich. And come to find out, it wasn't oil. It was natural gas, and it is there. And it's part of the, the political reason why Putin is very interested in Israel, and it does give Russia an end game to, to, for Israel because before that point, Russia kind of had a chokehold, and that's his whole interest in Syria, is that, that Assad is one of his customers, and that, that he needs those interests. Those, you know, one of the things that Russia struggles in is their economy, and they have this military might, but their economy has been hurting, and so he, he has, Russia has natural gas, and they kind of have a pipeline that feeds Europe, and if is, when Israel discovered the largest pocket of natural gas, it, 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 it's going to hurt Russia's economy, one of the reasons, side note. So that, um, that discovery five years ago was, was exciting, but it wasn't the one, right? So then today, um, the, the discovery, the announcement, it was actually a couple days ago, the announcement today that Israel just discovered, it's not Zion on oil and gas. I missed again. It's another company, but Zion and oil and gas is in the area. And so um, just interesting. It's always a fun thing. It was never really about making money. You know, we have a certain amount of stocks that every once in a while I put a hundred bucks here and there, and when it got to a dollar, you know, it was fun to buy seventy-five shares for a hundred bucks. You know, and, um, and and the whole thing is, if if that happens, and with that idea from Ezekiel thirty-eight and thirty-nine that someday they'd strike oil, knowing that if it did hit, that Jesus is coming anyway. So 
I'd have enough money to go on vacation for a week before Jesus came back, I guess. But um, just been something fun to follow, and it was kind of a fun development on today. I know some of the guys on the radio today, when they when they were announcing it, were you know, they, the guy said, you know, looks like Ezekiel 36, 37, 38. Smells like Ezekiel 38 and 39. Sounds like Ezekiel 38 and 39. Might be. But, you know, and again, we don't, we don't want to create hype. And here's the thing, you guys, I want to be very careful with. Um, Jesus said, occupy till I come. And, and, and I got rightfully so, I think, because I think it was, I think it's good to know this stuff. And, and, and went into this last September, into the, into the fall feast season of, of trumpets and Yom Kippur and, and those, those major Jewish holidays that were coming up and a lot of the ominous events that, you know, that I think we might, if, if you don't look a little bit closer, you might think some of that stuff came and went with no, um, no real significance. But that, that's not the case at all. The entire time that, that the month of September was going on, Russia is every week moving and advancing more and more in Syria with new developments, foot soldiers. Now, now planes, now bombs, now, now, you know, going on and on and Iran showing up and all these things are happening all the way through. And even with the stock market and, and all these things kind of slowly, all of this stuff was kind of happening and it still was a very um, eventful month and, and many biblical exciting things did happen and are happening and are still happening. But again, the, the, the substance is Jesus. Jesus said, occupy till I come. So are we living in the days? And, and when I did my prophecy update here and, and talking about those things, one of the things that I, I wanted to be careful to do, and, and to one of the two Sundays, we looked at the words in red. Jesus tells us in Matthew 24 what's going to happen in the last days when Jesus is going to come back. And it's all laid out for us. Wars, rumors of wars, pestilence, famines, earthquakes in various places, in, increasing in frequency and, and in intensity is what Jesus said. And so we tried to focus just on, on, you know, I looked at all the other kind of rabbit trails and we did a couple of those. We did the CERN rabbit trail on Wednesday night, but tried to communicate this message to you guys as our church here. Um, we have enough in Isaiah 17, in, in Ezekiel, in Jeremiah, in Revelation, in, in what Jesus said in the Olivet Discourse. That, that, you know, all these other things, they're, they're fun to watch. They're exciting to watch, especially if you like this kind of stuff, to follow these, these events as they unfold. But we, we just have enough in the Scripture. We don't need it. And the, the substance is always Christ. Because we never want to get in a place where if, if these current events, as we look at them, if they don't unfold the way that we think they're going to, then, you know, does it rock our faith? Does it put us back into neutral and cruise control in, in our walk and in our in our in our desire to serve and, and, and know Jesus and make him known. And that's always the fear. So the substance always has to be Christ. Jesus said, occupy till I come. Do we, do we you know, live in days that, that, that are sizing up to be those days? Absolutely, 100%. Could the Lord tarry another 5, 10, 15, 20 years? Absolutely. It's, it's the Lord. He can do what he wants, and the, the political landscape can change back as fast as it, it got to where it is today. As fast as we got major players in Ezekiel 38 and 39 showing up in the same place where God said they would show up in the last days, I guess they could pack up and go home just as fast. We, um, we could get a, a, a president, if, if the Lord tarries, that's, that's pro-Israel. And, and the whole, you know, things could go back. 
I, I don't I don't know. I don't see how I don't personally see him going backwards and getting better. But um, if it does, we we have to continue in waiting on the Lord Jesus and serving the Lord Jesus and living our lives for the Lord Jesus and sharing our faith. You know, you guys live in days right now that are, are some of the most powerful and effective days in sharing the love and the truth of Jesus Christ and the word and what's happening and the ability to go to the word of God and just just share with 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 people what Jesus is doing and what the word says. So occupy till he comes. Jesus said, plant, build houses, have children, plant gardens and vineyards and, you know, prepare as if you're going to be here for for the long haul. But be ready every day for my return. Amen. Let's stand. Destiny, you want to close us in a song? Um, we have one last song. If uh, Just ask you guys to take this song and just worship the Lord, seek God, praise Him from your heart. If anybody needs individual prayer, we'll be up front to uh, pray for you guys, with you guys. Apologize, we didn't actually get into our uh, Bible study tonight, but uh, we will next week. I won't do that two weeks in a row. Promise next week we'll get back into Genesis and uh, pick up where we left off. So uh, God bless you guys. Have a great week. We'll see you uh, Sunday, I think, is next. All right.